Matthew Black and Mircea Eliade Meet You Nibli by Gordon C. Thomason, read by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw. Matthew Black I left BYU in 1968 after suffering as a passenger in six months' time what normally would have been two fatal automobile accidents. Already having been admitted to the University of California, Santa Barbara, Professor Nibley told me that if I came back to complete advanced degrees in religion at BYU, he would never speak to me again because I would have nothing to say. Hugh then made an explicitly pointed critique of academic inbreeding at BYU religion at the time. During the rest of my graduate studies elsewhere, I stayed in contact with him through various means, primarily because I still sporadically worked on Brigham Young materials we had researched together. My other responsibilities to him at BYU had included my subsequent continuing study and critiques of both Latter-day Saint apologetics for the Book of Mormon, a never-completed thesis, and of temple-related ritual texts across cultures and through world history. I also continued to follow his other research. Among other projects, Hugh continued to publish serially on aspects of the Pearl of Great Price, first focusing on Abraham and then on Enoch. The Enoch research appeared in the Ensign magazine as A Strange Thing in the Land, The Return of the Book of Enoch, 1976 and 77. Some of these and his other writings on Enoch later appeared with a slightly altered content in Enoch the Prophet. Latter-day Saint interest in the study of these texts continues. After I left BYU, Terrell M. Butler, a fellow graduate student at Cornell, invited me to join him in attending a guest lecture there that was given by Matthew Black. Professor Black had collaborated with Joseph Millick in the first translation of the Aramaic Fragments of the Book of Giants in English in 1976. The Book of Giants, one of the oldest extant Enoch texts, had been found at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. Professor Black was then in residence at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study and had been invited to Cornell to discuss his research on Enoch, including especially the Qumran sources and later correlations. I had no particular expectations until Professor Black advanced his conclusion that those Enoch texts were part of a genuine tradition and predated Genesis, that Moses had drawn upon those Enoch sources in creating Genesis, and that certain carefully clandestine groups had, up through the Middle Ages, maintained sub rosa an esoteric religious tradition based in the writings of Enoch, at least into the time of and influencing Dante. I should note that at the time I had more or less firmly in memory a series of clear differences Hugh had shown between First Enoch, the 1821 Lawrence text, at least available in theory to Joseph Smith, the clearly distinct extracts which the prophet had published in 1832 in the Book of Moses, and later Enoch text discovers after 1844. I had ex elsewhere explored the concept of text availability, beginning in, in the 1960s, using what I then defined as an information environment, consisting of what hard evidence shows could have been known from manuscripts, inscriptions, and so forth at a given time and place on a specific topic or text. Waiting until the last of the lecture crowd had disappeared, I asked Professor Black if he was familiar with Joseph Smith's Enoch text. He said that he was not, but was interested. He first asked if it was identical or similar to First Enoch. I told him that it was not, and then proceeded to recite some of the correlations Dr. Nibley had shown with Millick and Black's own and others' Qumran and Ethiopic Enoch materials. He became quiet. When I got to Mahuja, in Moses 7-2, he raised his hand in a please-pause gesture and was silent. Finally, he acknowledged that the place name of Mahuja could not have come from First Enoch. 
He then formulated a hypothesis, consistent with his next lecture, that a member of one of the esoteric groups he had described previously must have survived into the 19th century, and hearing of Joseph Smith must have brought the group's Enix text to New York from Italy for the prophet to translate and publish. I did not argue the point that the Book of Moses might not have been available in Europe in time for someone to sail to the United States and get to upstate New York to meet a late 1830 or even 1832 publication deadline. At the end of our conversation, he expressed an interest in seeing more of Hugh's work. I proposed that Black should meet with Hugh, gave him the contact information, and he contacted Hugh the same day, as Hugh later confirmed to me. Soon he made a previously unplanned trip to Provo, where he met with Hugh for some time, and also gave a public guest lecture, but as I was told, in that public forum would not entertain questions on Moses. While Hugh subsequently told me the two of them enjoyed a long private conversation, oh, to have been a fly on the wall, Black, however, refused to entertain any questions about the Latter-day Saint scriptures in his public lecture. Editor's note, Hugh Nibley also recorded an account of his interactions with Matthew Black during the latter's 1977 visit to BYU. The account included a conversation with Black that apparently occurred near the end of his visit. Nibley asked Black if he had an explanation for the appearance of the name Mahuja in the Book of Moses and reported his answer as follows. Well, someday we will find out the source that Joseph Smith used. Later, Nibley summarized his conversations with Professor Matthew Black on the Book of Moses Enoch account during Black's 1976 visit to BYU. Dear Brother, The map on which you refer has been duly noted and discussed at some length in my forthcoming book. The Oxford edition of the Book of Enoch was edited by Matthew Black and Malik. On the week it appeared in 1976, I spent several days with Dr. Black. He was greatly impressed by certain parallels between the Qumran Book of Enoch and Joseph Smith's. When I started asking for explanations, he would switch to other topics, a ploy all too familiar with the Brotherhood. He is president of the St. Andrew's Golf Club in Scotland, the oldest in the world, and greatly preferred talking golf with Billy Casper, who also happened to be visiting here at the time, and splitting heads about the Book of Enoch. He did say a number of times, shaking his head in a bemused fashion, Someday we will find out where Joseph Smith got that. Someday a source will turn up, which I doubt not for a moment since we already have an impressive sampling. I am afraid it will not be what Brother Black is hoping for. Yours truly, Hugh Nibley, May 6, 1997. Mircea Eliade a plush offer to Mircea Eliade of a visiting physician in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, during our winter quarters, combined with his lack of interest in spending those same winter months in Chicago, brought me into contact with him both as a student in a graduate seminar and as the graduate assistant for his advanced undergraduate seminar. Eliade's methodology in dealing with archetypes was, at its best, subjective, as all methodologies must be but it had its publicly recognized downside as well. Some common criticisms of Eliade's work included his being highly reliant on secondary sources and on translations for the countless texts he employed from outside the Indo-European tradition in many Indo-European languages, including Sanskrit. He was quite able. And for presenting his parallels or archetypes, images that could only be sustained when taken out of context or given in translation. Moreover, when pressed as to how archetypal resemblances were shared among peoples and cultures, Eliade verbally admitted that, as far as he could tell, the archetypes had to be based in common genetics. 
This raises far more problems than it could ever answer, of course. As a result, I believe, he avoided questions of cultural diffusion about which other Europeans, unlike most North Americans, especially in the field of cultural anthropology, are quite open. I witnessed something with Eliade when I worked in his undergraduate seminar that term. We did not have a clear thread visible in the syllabus as to where he was headed, but I began to see the red line of Ariadne's clue running through his seminar in the direction of Nibley's article, The Expanding Gospel. The next week, at the end of the seminar, I gave Eliade a copy of that article and suggested that he might find it relevant. The following week, he was nearly jumping out of his skin and could hardly wait to shoo the undergrads out, of, out after class. Then he sat me down and asked, who is this Hugh Nibley, and why haven't I ever heard of him, and so forth? He knows my field better than I do, Eliade continued, and his translations are elegant. I explained, among other things, that he published in the journal of a number of different disciplines outside the history of religions, depending on his research and the text he was working on at the moment. We then spent the better part of an hour going over the article, and I noted to him as the discussion progressed without being too explicit, where or how Latter-day Saint apologetic and esoteric subtext ran through the article. He replied, paraphrasing here, who cares? His evidence, logic, are faultless. He then went on to ask explicitly if he could hire Hugh to teach in his History of Religions program at Chicago. I said I didn't think so, that he had unlimited book-buying power, the Jackling Fund, and all the library needed where he was, and that Hugh had already been at Chicago. Impossible. I would have known him, replied Eliade. I then dropped what I knew was an explosive depth charge, thinking it might well end the discussion. But he was at the Oriental Institute, and Professor Anthon tore up the transcript. Well, not quite. We continued the discussion, but not until after he had said, Ah, you're right, he wouldn't fit into our program, I suspect. There was no love or academic respect between the Oriental Institute, which advocated the use of primary sources only, and Eliade's History of Religion School, where a dissertation could only be done using mainly secondary sources. Subsequently, however, at Eliade's request, I spent the rest of the semester giving him copies of what I thought were the most appropriate Nibley articles. He devoured them in turn and then quizzed me about them after class each week, in case he had missed something. Eliade knew that all scholars have a bias. Once in an unguarded moment, he allowed me that his Romanian Orthodox Christianity really was it. More important to him in our discussions was how well scholars read and quote in context, translate, use logic, or in other words, play by the rules. Only his return to Chicago ended our private seminar. In my direct personal experience, and at my invitation, other research university and world-class scholars have, like Eliade and Black, read and given very positive ratings to Nibley's work when it is overlapped their own, and when I submitted it for their consideration, with no preface other than, what do you think of this?